No migrants more in. No Europe without Christianity. An alliance also with Russia. EU Scream, in association with EU Observer, Episode 76, The Curious Case of the Racial Muslim. Professor Sahar Aziz, in conversation with think tanker and journalist Shada Islam. Shada, we're back with another episode in our Brussels So White series. How are you feeling about what we're trying to do here? I'm very excited about this series. We need to have these conversations, you and I. Yeah, and I'd say it's just remarkable how much this conversation needs to be brought into the European policymaking space, how important it is to bring this conversation to Brussels. It's just not here in a way that you can hear it the same way that you can hear it in other policy capitals, particularly in the United States. Yes, it's in a silo of its own, in a bubble of its own. Uh, It's not mainstreamed. In this upcoming conversation, you're focused on what one might say is a fixation of many European bigots. That is Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism. And part of the conversation in Europe is an attempt to cancel the word Islamophobia. Yes, James, the argument becomes quite semantic when some people say Islam is a religion, not a race. Therefore, hating Islam and Muslim is not racist. And your guest today has devoted her academic research to explaining the opposite, that Muslims in the West became a race, and how society turned them into what she calls racialized Muslims. Yes, my guest today is Sahar Aziz. She's the author of this fantastic book called The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. She's a professor of law at Rutgers University Law School and also founding director of the university's Center for Security, Race and Rights. Rutgers in New Jersey in the United States. And I point that out because that puts her in the long tradition of legal scholars in the United States who've used the law to advance the civil rights movement and anti-racist causes. Absolutely. And just to come back to your point about Islamophobia not being liked as a term by many European policymakers, that is true. But I'm thinking there may be a geopolitical context to this. Okay, so what's the wider picture there? The word has been hijacked by the leaders of some Muslim-majority countries who take offense at what they see as Europe's disrespect for Islam as a religion. For them, that is Islamophobia. For European Muslims, however, whether you call it Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism, anti-Muslim hatred, the real issue is inequality, discrimination, difficulties in finding a place to live, to get into good schools and to get jobs – The real problem is ethnic profiling, the attribution of collective guilt because of terrorist attacks by extremists. That, as my guest Sahar Aziz argues, is because Muslims have been racialized. Sahar, I just want to hear from you. What is the distinction, the difference that you would make between these different terms, Islamophobias and anti-Muslim hatred or anti-Muslim racism? Are we talking about the same thing or just taking a different view of it, a different approach? So Islamophobia is not just about 
religion. And I would argue it has very little to do with religion because oftentimes it is not manifested in some academic theological debate about what Islam says or doesn't say. But what Islamophobia is really about is racism, prejudice against individuals who self-identify as Muslims, regardless whether they're religious or not religious, practicing or not practicing. But to be Muslim is similar to be black or to be brown in a particular white-dominated society. So your book is about anti-Muslim racism and discrimination in America. Before you go deeper into the question, you link it to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Here in Europe, 9-11 was also quite a defining moment, uh, especially for Muslims. So, of course, since then, in Europe, we've had other terrorist attacks by Islamist extremists linked to Al-Qaeda and also ISIS. This has led to trauma and it's also led to, a, I would say, an abiding link between Islam and terrorism, that Muslims are more prone to terrorism. There's also been an attribution of collective guilt. This is why it's not so much about how religious a Muslim is or whether they, in fact, theologically agree with Al-Qaeda or ISIS. But just to be Muslim is to be presumed to be violent or support violence, at least presumed to be misogynistic, presumed to be anti-democratic and anti-liberal. And unless you can individually prove otherwise, that presumption sticks to you. The same way that blackness imputes upon you all sorts of anti-black racist stereotypes. Explain to me a little bit more this racialization of Muslims in uh, in Europe as well, that it's linked to colonialism. It's also linked to religious texts, I think, going back also. You know, the Crusades, and you mentioned the competition, the geopolitical competition even then with the Ottoman Empire. So when you're looking at Europe today, are you seeing this racialization of Islam taking place here as well? The clash of civilizations paradigm is a very entrenched paradigm in Europe that was also transplanted to the United States. And the relationship between Europe and the Ottoman Empire in particular has defined how people of European origin perceive people who are from Muslim-majority countries that were formerly controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And they perceive them, again, as despotic, as licentious, as backward, as unsophisticated, as violent. And although... When you read about it in school, you think, oh, that was a long time ago. That was hundreds of years ago. But just like slavery in the U.S., although it's outlawed, although it's no longer practiced, it continues to implicate the different social, political and legal structures. Right. It's just so right because we've got, you know, the white man's burden. We've got the mission to civilize, the war on terror, white supremacy. And of course, now the great replacement theory and all of this harks back to a long time ago. But if you are seen to be practicing Islam and, you know, you pray or you fast in Ramadan or you're religious in other ways, visibly religious, then you're seen as backward and actually not in sync with the European way of life and not accepting European values. While the talk here, the rhetoric is about creating a European union of equality. 
What are your thoughts on that? The U.S. as compared to Europe, based on many polls, shows that a larger number of Americans identify as religious Christians or religious Catholics and even religious Muslims. So in the U.S., that's it's much easier, I think, to to prove that it is an anti-Muslim problem versus an anti-religion problem. I think in Europe it might be a little bit more complicated, and it depends on the country. And so, for example, in France, where at least the formal rhetoric from the government is laicite, right, secularism, not that you cannot practice your religion, but you can in no way make it public. And we've seen that come to a head with the hijab, where women who, as we know, believe that their religion requires them to wear the hijab, the head covering, and as a result, they want to go to school, they want to go to work, and the state has said, absolutely not. Now, the state's claim is we do the same thing with Jews. When it comes to yarmulkes, we do the same thing with Christians. When it comes to wearing a cross that is that is obvious or large, but there are many critics who argue that that's not necessarily the case, that there's much more tolerance of the practice, particularly of Catholicism, which is the majority faith. But what you cannot underestimate is, again, the role of the colonial era racism that infects the analysis in Europe. The U.S.'s legacy of oppression is slavery, genocide against Native Americans, and kind of systemic labor exploitation and prejudice against new immigrants. In Europe, their legacy of oppression is colonialism. So if you want to understand the relationship between France and French law and French society and Islam and Muslims, you have to understand their history of colonization in Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia and other sub-Saharan African countries. Similarly with the UK and India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and the, the, the Indian subcontinent. So that's where I think the intersection comes in and it does become localized. And that's where you will see this continuation of racism, which is effectively believing that a group of people is inherently inferior, inherently less than and less worthy on account of immutable characteristics, such as what they look like. And so those are the types of phenomena at play that I think bring to light Islamophobia in the UK, in Austria, in Belgium, in France. But again, the way that you really tease it out is through comparative analysis, is how do other groups who are members of the majority, how are they treated compared to Muslims? And when you see that disparity, which I think is pretty consistently proven in Europe and in the U.S., that's where the evidence is clear that there's an Islamophobia problem. Right. And that's why you've called your book The Racial Muslim. And you say very clearly racialization, racism is a social construct, and white being white or being non-white is a racial construct, a social construct as well. So racialization is the process in which particular characteristics, and they tend to be physical or they could be culture, they could be religion, and the most common is phenotype. That's what people understand or think of when they think of race is your skin color, your hair texture, your facial features. But what I'm arguing is it's not simply about phenotype. It's also about your religious beliefs, because that is imputing upon you these inferior 
characteristics and traits that then justify and legitimate your mistreatment by the state and by members of the public and by members of the majority. Because people, when they discriminate, rarely believe they are engaging in bad behavior, rarely believe they have bad intentions. They often justify it as necessary for a common good, to protect the nation against terrorism, to protect their children against dangerous people. So in order for that type of mistreatment to be justified, you have to otherize that group. So racialization, by definition, is harmful. When you are racialized, (laughs) that means you are going to be discriminated against. And then the question is how and to what degree? And it's not just a global north process. I mean, we could analyze racialization within the global south and the global east based on their own history. But global Islamophobia, the, the core of the problem is in the global north and the global west where Muslim diasporas, who are minorities, are being categorically discriminated against collectively in societies, and this is where it's really important, in societies who who are committed to liberalism, who have constitutions that prohibit religious discrimination and racism, a blatant contradiction as opposed to perhaps another country that is openly dictatorial, openly authoritarian. You talk about the good Muslim, right? And those are, we have them as well here in Europe. A good Muslim in the eyes of Europeans is also one who doesn't really practice the religion, at least not visibly, is, you know, secular in the way he or she behaves, or as you point out in your book, actually denounces Islam. I argue it's not simply a good Muslim, bad Muslim paradigm. It's not just a dichotomy. It's actually a hierarchy. And... You will get people who say, well, I haven't experienced that. I don't know what you're talking about. This isn't Islamophobia. This isn't a systemic problem. These people really deserve it. If you look at who's most targeted, it is those who are both religious and politically dissident. And those are the ones whom the government targets and that the public will vilify. Because it comes down to questioning your loyalty. So if someone who is of Ukrainian background or Russian background or British or English background, they can have whatever politics they choose vis-a-vis what's happening in that particular country or the U.S.'s policy vis-a-vis that country. And nobody will challenge them and say, hey, are you loyal to the United States? But what's happening is they're on terms that are forcing and coercing Muslims to have to constantly prove their loyalty to constantly have to state that Islam does not support violence, to constantly have to show interpretations of Islam that we do not, that Islam is not supporting Al-Qaeda and that Al-Qaeda is an outlier and ISIS is an outlier. And the kind of ideal Muslim is the Muslim who completely sheds their entire identity as it is related to Islam. So they're completely secularized in their lifestyle and their associations and who they marry and who their friends are and what they name their children and effectively are assimilated into the predominantly European Protestantized kind of quote American uh, identity. And they're not dissident. So they're not troublemakers. And they're good immigrants or children of immigrants or good minorities is stay out of politics or if you're in politics, stay in the mainstream. 
wanted to ask you a little bit about what you say about Islamophobia as a lucrative industry uh, and also, of course, being used uh, to win votes in, in campaigns, electoral campaigns. And quite a lot of evidence of transatlantic conversation between far-right groups. And yet the questions related to far-right terrorism or far-right violence hardly ever made. It's all about the Muslims as potential terrorists, isn't it? Yes. And that's how power works, because those in power get to decide uh, who the problem people are, what the problems are, and what the remedy is. Muslims have been targeted in national security enforcement. So although the laws don't say explicitly target Muslims, perhaps with the ex exception of the Muslim ban, which was ultimately blessed by the U.S. Supreme Court, all of the laws are facially neutral. But the prosecutors and the heads of policymaking in a country decide how to use their limited resources and what they believe is the most serious criminal problem or social problem. In the U.S., what we found that far-right extremism was on the rise. And these are groups who have guns. These are groups who support using violence. And they hate Black people and Jews and Muslims. And yet the FBI continued to waste all these resources concocting and manufacturing fake terrorist plots to ensnare and entrap young, vulnerable Muslim men. The evidence is quite clear that they were desperately, the FBI and the Department of Justice was desperately trying to create fake terrorism cases. I just want to talk to you a little bit about geopolitics. By the mid-1990s, terrorism by Muslims became the global threat and that replaced communism. But now we're living through a rather different moment because of the war in Ukraine and our dependence on Russian oil and gas. We're trying to wean ourselves off that dependency and we're looking to many other oil suppliers, gas suppliers, and many of those, as we know, are Arab states, Gulf states, North African states. So they'll have to be a renewed attempt at engagement. So do you think the perception of Muslims will change once we have to engage and have to import oil from them once again, the way that, you know, it was in the 1970s, perhaps. So I'm not optimistic that having to deal with Muslim-majority countries is going to change or decrease Islamophobia, because I think it's effectively done in a way that is just a post-colonial structure where the global West and North still believe that they are the ones who are supposed to be in control and in power. And that the, the global south and global east are supposed to service them. There's a difference in how Islamophobia functions with regard to Muslim diaspora. Americans or Europeans may have no problem engaging in diplomatic relations with Muslims, but they don't want them in their countries. They don't want them as citizens. They don't want them living among them. They want them far away in the former colonies. And essentially in a relate, in an economic relationship that benefits Europe and the United States. That's really the test of somebody's values is how do they treat people when they're their neighbors, when their kids go to school with them, when they're their coworkers, when they're their supervisors, when they're elected officials, when they're professors or people with power. So 
Are you optimistic that there will be change, perhaps because younger people are more inclusive? Do you think this change is going to happen? I believe two factors influence individuals. And one is who their friends and family and neighbors are and what they learn in school. You know, it's not as controversial to teach American students about Europe's infractions and abuses as colonial states because those are other countries. But it's much more problematic and, and much more controversial when people want to teach children about slavery and about the legacies of slavery and about modern day disparities along race lines, because no country wants to accept that it has a systemic racism problem. I think the most important thing we can do as the older generation is to provide as many opportunities for young people to engage, interact, socialize with people who are different from them. Because if they don't do that, they are sitting ducks for propaganda and manipulation. I mean, you do see more diversification in the media and representation of people that look different and have different beliefs within media. And social media is also mitigating physical segregation. It's kind of desegregating at the virtual level. And these younger people live, for better or worse, in the virtual world. So my optimism is that the more that this younger generation is interacting with people who are different, then I think the less acceptable and normal it is for them to be so overtly racist, to engage in this tribalism, this ethno-nationalism. You talk about this in your book, about how some ethnicities, some nationalities have become white over the years. Uh, when you look at Muslims in Europe today, very diverse, coming from very, very different backgrounds, different parts of the world. Do you think that Muslims in Europe can become assimilated as white and become part of our system? Uh, or do you think we're going to be permanent outsiders, permanent foreigners? In the United States, whiteness has been very resilient because whiteness is the dominant social political group but it's socially constructed. It used to be only those who were English and Protestant, and then it grew to Protestant and Northwest European, and then it grew to uh, European and Catholic, and then European and Jewish. And the reason why it continues to expand is because that's the way to preserve it. And the U.S. right now is in a position where by 2050, Whiteness as it is currently socially constructed, which is anyone of European origin, of Judeo-Christian religious tradition, is considered white, socially. If that definition of whiteness, that social definition of whiteness, doesn't expand and change, then whites will become a minority and you could have an apartheid state where a minority is controlling a majority. So there are some scholars who predict, and I agree with them, that whiteness is on the verge of expanding to socially include white presenting Hispanics. And so you're going to start having a separate identity for those who are Hispanic, similar to Jews who are Eastern European and Catholics who are Italian, who were not considered socially white in the early 1900s. There is a, a possibility, and I think it's quite likely, that people who are of Middle East descent will also 
ultimately become white. But there's a question, and I don't know the answer to it. Will Muslim identity continue to effectively blacken Muslims? Because post 9-11, a white presenting person whose name was Muhammad, regardless what he looked like, he was not white socially. In that regard, there is a possibility that Muslims who secularize become white. But to be religious and be a Muslim means that you are an outsider to a Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, the other possibility, which I discuss in the book, is that there may be a transition from a Judeo-Christian identity to an Abrahamic identity, which is what happened after World War II. So if that happens, if you have an expansion of the social construction of whiteness, then yes, I believe that large numbers of Muslims will effectively become white, just like Jews and Catholics. I think in Europe, it's much more complicated because the U.S. is a new country. It doesn't have you know, centuries of history. It doesn't have monarchies. It doesn't, their native people are almost all gone and everybody's an immigrant, right? Except for the Native Americans. And the concept of bloodlines and uh, biological ancestry is not the same as in Europe, where a Frenchman and a British person and a, you know, someone who's from Austria or German, I think is much more connected to bloodlines of multiple generations. And therefore, I question whether these social constructions of whiteness or whatever the majority group is that is considered the authentic citizen can be expanded to incorporate you know, all of these migration and these the intermixing uh, that presumably is happening. Because the other question is, is there intermixing? So the Turks who have been in Germany for multiple generations, the Algerians and the North Africans who have been in France, the South Asians who have been in British, is there an intermixing in marriage? Because that is also kind of contributes to restructuring of the quote unquote true citizen, the real citizen. My suspicion is that it's not as easy because of the complicated history of Europe in general and its relationships with its former colonial subjects. Yeah, the whole idea, uh, Sahar, of hyphenated identities, hyphenated, you know, you can be uh, British Asian, but you're very rarely Belgian Asian or French Asian. Fluid identities are not really part of our uh, conversations at the moment. I mean, we are hyphenated, Belgian and European at the same time. But that idea that you can be that and you will have your loyalty, your culture defined by where you are, but also with where your parents came from or your grandparents come from here, third generation immigrants. That's what we call them. Yeah, we call them third generation Americans. Yes, there you go. Third generation Americans versus third generation immigrants in Europe. What's fascinating about the contemporary association of Europe with whiteness is that it was not always the case. So currently, if someone explicitly states or implies that they're of European origin, the presumption is that they're white, which then comes with it all sorts of positive and favorable presumptions, that they are loyal, that they are educated, that they are law-abiding, supportive of liberal values, even if they may individually not be. The irony or the paradox is that a 100 years ago, during the era of eugenics, 
it was not the case that simply being European was enough to be considered white because you had 46 different races in the Dictionary of Races that was issued by the U.S. government. And 35 of those races were people who originated in Europe. And people from Northwestern Europe saw those who were from Eastern and Southern Europe as inferior. And this is just an example of how race is socially constructed to serve political agendas and to keep certain groups of people in power. And so now anyone from Europe is white and anyone who's not in Europe is considered non-white. And then depending on the hierarchy, which is based on global white supremacist paradigms, the more South you're originating from, the more inferior you're presumed. And if you're Muslim, then you're most certainly considered foreign to whiteness. That's it for this episode. EU Scream's nonprofit journalism is supported by listener donations, partnerships, and by advertising. And we're grateful to the Laura Kinsella Foundation for an annual grant. For more details and for more EU Scream, visit euscream.com or click on podcast at euobserver.com. I'm James Cantor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>